0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode four, God the Creator, Creator of heaven and earth. Having just affirmed our belief in God the Father Almighty, we move on to the recognition of God as creator of heaven and earth. And it might seem pretty unobjectionable for believers today to claim God as creator of heaven and earth. But Christians in the early church had to defend this idea against certain teachings and ideas that we associate with the position called Gnosticism. So let's hear from Ben as he explains the Gnostic view of creation and how the Christian position compares.
1: Well, anyone who's been human for a little while discovers something about the world almost as soon as you begin to be aware of your environment, you start to discover that the world doesn't always fulfill your wishes. That the world, uh, yes, it can be beautiful, but it can also be incredibly dangerous. The world that we live in does not always support human life. It doesn't always take our side, if I can put it like that. Diseases, natural disasters, insects that can bite and kill you it's a dangerous difficult world to live in the ancient uh, and 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 most ancient systems of thought and ancient systems of religious practice in some way tried to respond to this fact we are living in a world that is not exactly satisfying in fact if i'd had the choice of making the world i can easily come up with a whole list of things that i would have done better right no malaria no cancer cells, no sudden tsunamis that can wipe out human populations, uh, no extreme weather events that, that will be inhospitable to human life. I can easily be, no sharks when I'm swimming in the ocean. I can easily begin to list the improvements I would make to the world. Well, the The way you think about that on a larger scale, that set of problems, the fact that it's not a perfect world and it's not a perfectly satisfactory environment for humans to live in. I didn't even mention the worst one, by the way, and I'm sorry to have to raise this, but everyone in the end dies. And that is a particularly unsatisfactory aspect of human life. Quite hard to get your head around what that means, that I and everyone I love will one day not be part of this world anymore. It's a hard world to live in. It's a hard world to think about, right? Well, the ancient Gnostics, which, which is a general, um, term that, that, that is used to describe a whole lot of, of small, uh, that was kind of a widespread movement in the second century around the same time that the Christian movement was springing up. It was, Christianity itself was often splintering into some of these, these small sectarian groups described as, as Gnostics. And here's how they solved this problem. The Gnostic solution was, look, the world is like this because the creator was evil. The world is like this because the creation itself is evil. It's actually an instrument of an evil deity designed to harm us, designed to hurt us, designed to hinder us. It's a bad world because it was made by a bad God. And the usual Gnostic solution was some form of dualism where there was also a good God who made some good bits and they got mixed together. What are the good bits? Usually it's the human spirit, the the invisible interior part of me. That part lives forever. That part's good. That part's innocent but it is trapped in this horrible, evil, malignant and malicious material world. What does salvation consist of then? And and the Gnostic groups still usually thought of Jesus as a savior. What does Jesus do? He comes to free my spirit from its imprisonment in this evil world. So the, the ancient Gnostic groups had a way of thinking about creation, and a way of thinking about salvation, and it was, all, it was all based on the idea that the world is an evil world. All the way through the Apostles' Creed, you can see the marks of a struggle against Gnosticism. Over and over again, the Creed keeps reassuring you that this world is good.
0: So we can see that to affirm God as creator of everything was a pretty radical move in the context from which the Creed arose. And Ben also mentions the idea of salvation, and we'll get to the implications of this in a later episode. While we're on the subject of creation, though, heaven and earth, of course, includes us as well. So what does it mean that we are created by God? Well, Genesis 1 mentions that we are created in God's image. And another way this is put is describing humans as the Imago Dei, which translates to image of God. How do we understand this, given that God is spirit and does not have a body, how can we be made in the image of God? Have a think about what the phrase, being made in the image of God, means for you. Well, the way we understand our being made in God's image is often broken down into three categories. First, we can understand this in a structural or substantive way. There is a particular quality or characteristic of God's, which we possess also, and which marks us out as bearing the image of God. So in this approach, there's a focus on capacities that we have. We are rational beings, for example, or moral beings. And Augustine of Hippo gives us a good example of this way of thinking. He writes that man's excellence consists in the fact that God made him to his own image by giving him an intellectual soul, which raises him above the beasts of the field. A second way of understanding the image of God is the performance of a particular function. Some have interpreted humans being in the image of God to designate us as God's representatives in the world. God's rule over the earth is delegated to us in a subordinate way. In the ancient Near East, in the time that Genesis was written, kings would have statues of themselves erected in faraway parts of their kingdom. These statues would remind subjects of the power of the king, by whose authority local overseers would rule. Perhaps our being made in the image of God allows us to perform a certain function. And finally, the image of God can be understood in more relational terms. It's more about our connection with God than any capacity we possess or function we carry out. And this takes on even more significance in light of God's triune nature. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We'll look at the Trinity in a later episode, but as we already know that there is an inner relationality to God, it makes sense to think of the image of God as having something to do with relationship as well. So think back to your earlier reflection on what it means to be the image of God. Which approach does it align with? Structural, functional, or relational? Perhaps it's a combination of two or more. If you think about it, it's actually pretty hard to untangle these categories completely. If we talk about relationship, for example, we might mean a relational model for the image of God, but we could also be speaking about the capacity for a relationship, and this would be a structural understanding or the act of relating, which emphasises the image of God as a function. So the best approach to thinking about the image of God would be a combination of these three understandings. And we also need to be careful not to make too much of the image of God concept. Aligning our understanding of the image too firmly with a capacity or action or relationality always runs the risk of excluding some people those who differ from what we designate the norm when it comes to mental, physical, or relational abilities. And it's interesting to compare what the Bible says about us with what it says about Jesus when it comes to the image of God. Compare Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created humankind in his image with the reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 to the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Notice any differences? If you look at all of the references to Christ and to humans more generally and the image of God in Scripture, you will find that every description of humans says that we are made in the image of God, whereas Christ just is the image of God. What's the significance of the preposition? First, there's a difference between Christ and the rest of humanity. While Christ is the image of God, people need to be transformed to be fully the image of God. That is, they're not God's image now the way that Christ is. Second, some kind of need for growth is identified. The claim that humans are made in God's image is a statement about the purpose of creation, perhaps more so than it is about present realities. Isn't that amazing? We fulfill the very purpose of our creation as we grow more and more Christ-like. And although only humans are explicitly referenced in the scriptures as being in the image of God, the Bible does make it clear that the rest of creation reveals something about God as well. Take Psalm 19, which we already looked at in Episode 2 in the context of natural theology. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The concept of the image of God gets used to defend the uniqueness of humans, or even the superiority of humans over all the creation. And historically, this has led to some problematic ways of viewing the natural world, especially if humans don't also take seriously the role as steward that should accompany this type of view. We run the risk of seeing the rest of creation as something put there solely for our benefit, even exploitation and caring for non-human life falls well down the list of priorities. So this is a good example of why theology matters. Finally, it's worth noting that to say that God is creator is not making any comment on how God creates. As with the Genesis account of creation, the creed was written in a pre-scientific era. It is therefore not making any claim concerning the scientific theory of evolution. Christians can affirm the creed while subscribing to a whole range of different views as to how old the universe is and how life originated. However, theologians draw on information from different sources to make sense of faith and to build a coherent understanding of the world. Though Protestantism is famed for its principle of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, this doesn't mean that the Bible is the only place we go for our theological understanding, just that we don't place other authorities above Scripture. Recognising other sources of authority doesn't mean they're given equal weight. Scripture is the primary source, as the inspired Word of God that, with the help of the Spirit, continues to instruct the Church today. But we interpret Scripture in conversation with Christian thinkers throughout history. That's tradition. And the creeds are an example of listening to tradition, They are theological statements developed in an earlier time as people wrestled with how to understand scripture. And we also apply wisdom and rational thought as we do this work of interpretation. N.T. Wright describes how these sources work together with a helpful illustration. We should think of scripture as a bookshelf, with tradition being the memory of what we and others have understood from reading the content of that shelf. And reason is the set of spectacles that we wear to make sense of the reading. And sometimes personal experience is recognised as a source as well. This is a tricky one. On the one hand, experience is very subjective, and therefore it doesn't seem like a firm foundation on which to build theological claims. But even Jesus appealed to experience in interpreting Scripture. Think of how the Pharisees challenged him when he healed on the Sabbath, that's in Matthew chapter 12. He didn't answer in this instance by quoting scripture back at them, but instead he asked them whether they would rescue one of their sheep from a ditch on the Sabbath. They are to consult their own feelings, to use their imaginations in order to understand. A lot of important theological work has grown out of particular personal experiences as well. Think of Bonhoeffer's writings on community, which were shaped by his experience of persecution under the Nazi regime. Wherever we do employ experience, however, we have to take care not to elevate it too highly to make it the final authority for our theological understanding. So, returning to creation, even though the scriptures do not provide us with an account of how God creates, we can and should learn from other sources on this matter. Our scientific exploration of the world points to biological evolution as a part of that story, without compromising the Bible's witness to God as creator of all things. Well, there's no one more qualified to comment on this than Alistair, given that he has PhDs in both molecular biophysics and theology. Does he see a conflict between the Christian understanding of God as creator and an evolutionary account?
2: One of the things that I really enjoyed doing as a historical theologian is to think about how ideas like God as creator and so on develop. And as you look at the Christian tradition, you'll see that as they reflect on Genesis, there are two kind of strands of possibilities that emerge. One is to say creation is in effect, it's done. I've made this, it's complete, it's perfect. End of story. The other is to say, no, 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 creation is about beginning something that unfolds and develops over time. We find that, for example, in Augustine. It's a very interesting idea. So creation here, if you like, designates an act by which something is begun, but also an ongoing process by which this is developing. And not something by the way in which God stands back and says, right, I'm done with this, but rather something within which God is present, exercising, if you like, a a directive or providential um, care over the development of things. And for me, I think as Christians, we've got to think about this. Um, which of those ideas of creation seems closer to the biblical account? For me, I'm afraid it's a second, which is that creation is very much about, you know, an act which begins and then a process which continues. And that maps on for me as a scientist, to the Big Bang and the process of cosmic evolution and then biological evolution. Now, it doesn't solve all the problems. I do want to emphasize that. But there is nothing in the Old Testament or indeed the New Testament which says that we have to think of creation as a zapping of things and it's exactly the way it was meant to be. No, no, no. It's a process. And to me, that's really helpful because, in effect, it's about God involved in an ongoing way with the creation. And we have a role to play as well. We fit into this in terms of tending that creation. So for me, it opens up a rich understanding of creation, but also our responsibility to look after it.
0: This is just one example of how we draw on information from different sources, but there are many more. Back in episode two, I asked you to think about why you believe what you do. Consider that question again. Do you find it helpful to break down knowledge and understanding into the various sources that inform it? Which sources of authority do you tend to value and trust most and why? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.